Lord, we long for you to come and speak now. You are the only one who has the authority and the right to call people to yourself and to transform lives and to make us what we ought to be and to give us joy and to draw us to yourself. And so I pray that you would come, that your anointing would be upon this message, that it would be true and would conform faithfully to your word, that it would have the power of the Holy Spirit in it, that you would draw near to those who are sitting in the pew and awaken them from indifference or slumber or distraction or even hostility, and that you would draw us together to yourself in these next few minutes. I ask it for your glory, Father, and for the good of all. In Jesus' name, amen. Last night, sometime before 9 o'clock, Eric Larson, Glenn and Patty's boy, died. At the hospital, we took turns holding Eric, almost two, and uh, Perrin held him, and old Sarah held him, brother and sister, and grandmother and granddaddy held him, and, and mom and dad held him, and when Patty was holding him, she... Um, looked at the nurse at one point and said, how do people bear it who don't have any hope? And as I was walking out uh, through the United part of Children's Hospital, the United Hospital's lobby, I saw down the hallway a couple in in a real strong embrace, and then I heard the biggest heaving sobs. And the question that went through my mind was, I wonder if they have hope. And I wondered it, not because you only do that when you don't. That's not true. You can't judge whether a person has hope or not by whether they sob when somebody is amputated out of their life that they care about. The sobbing is pretty much the same on the outside in both cases. It just raised the question because she had said it so recently and so pointedly That on the inside, it makes a great difference whether you have hope or not in those moments. And then in the life afterwards, it makes a great deal of difference whether you have hope or not. And so I've been thinking about that since last night. How do you bear it when you don't have hope? Meaning, with hope, you can bear it. Now, I'm I'm aware that historically, philosophically, there have been some pretty sophisticated efforts for the last several hundred years to say that that sentiment which came out of Patty's mouth is not based upon a solid reality of God out there, but is the foundation by which you create a reality in here. Ludwig Feuerbach, for example, a philosopher in Germany, wrote a book, The Essence of Christianity, which is just the opposite of that, in 1841, in which he argued God is the projection of the need for hope upon reality. God is not out there at all. There is only emptiness in the universe. But we can't survive emptiness and therefore we create 
God? And that is a massive question that we face this morning. At Christmas time, is this story of a God, a son, a father, a spirit in one being, loving a rebellious world, sending one of the members of the Trinity, the Son, to clothe himself with humanity, live a sinless life of love, die for sinners, rise from the dead, reign at God's right hand, and someday come again to establish his kingdom. Is that story a creation because we so desperately need it to get through the problems of life? As Feuerbach said, or do we feel these tremendous needs in our hearts because that's the reality that's there made for us from the beginning. And that's a question you've got to answer this morning. Everybody in this room has got to come to terms with that question. Is the sentiment of Patty Larson last night, how do those endure without hope? Is that sentiment a projection onto reality of what Patty needs regardless of what is objectively, or is that an echo back to reality of what is there offering itself to her that night? That is a very important question. That's vastly more important than anything you will have to deal with in this Christmas season. And I can't believe that everybody in this room is not authentic enough to say, yeah, I want to answer that question. I just can't believe that anybody in this room would be so faky, so inauthentic, as to just walk out of here, flick on the ball game and say, those kinds of things don't really matter. Those questions don't matter. <laughs> no way. You cannot, in this room right now, be thinking that. You must answer that question. Is it a fabrication projected onto reality by a gut-level need for security and forgiveness and hope? Or are those needs echoes of a reality that's out there? Now, to answer that question, I think we need to listen to witnesses about God and the coming of His Son. Biblical witnesses. Book. I believe that this book is inspired by God, the creator of the universe. And that, therefore, this book carries an unusual power in it. One of the writers says, it's like a sword piercing to the division of bone and marrow, soul and spirit. When you let this book address you with all of its varied testimonies, a miracle can happen. It's happened for many where you find yourself unable morally to say, it's a fakey book. In other words, something happens and you hear the testimonies that are so penetrating, the witnesses that are too diverse, the insights that are too high, the vision of divine things that are too wonderful, its authority that's too compelling, its love that's too rare, its savior that's too radical to have been created by a bunch of sinful people. And you find yourself morally unable to say no any longer to this message and this book. 
What I would just invite you to do for the next 15 minutes or so is just let the witness be heard in your mind. And if you're able, in your heart. I'm going to give you six witnesses. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, and the writer to the Hebrews. Six witnesses. Men who either were faking it or were utterly deluded or were on to something of infinite importance. And what I've, the question I've asked these six witnesses is this. Why did God Almighty send his son into the world? And they give back six answers. Let's just take them very briefly one at a time. Number one. He came, Mark witnesses, he came as a ransom for many. Mark 10.45 goes like this. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, the reason you and I, human beings, need a ransom is because we have voluntarily sold ourselves into slavery to sin. We are enslaved to sin. We get up and we go to bed and we sin. And in order to be released from the bondage, a ransom, a redemption, a price is paid for us. And when it's paid, we may find our way into the family of God. Galatians, Paul's testimony goes like this. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem or ransom those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. That's the positive side of the release. We're enslaved to sin, to death, to guilt, to Satan. A ransom is paid and we are not only released from the slavery by the ransom, but we are adopted by the ransom payer into the divine family. Hebrews 2.14 puts it like this. This is the third witness. Since the children share in flesh and blood, that is, since human beings have this stuff, bodies, since they share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature. Why? That through death, he might destroy him who has the power of death. Now, just think what that means. The Son of God willed to die for you. And he couldn't. He's immortal. In order to do that, he clothed himself with human flesh that he might die. That's the reason for Christmas. That's the reason for the Incarnation. You've got to be mortal in order to die. Therefore, God clothed himself with mortality. He took on human flesh precisely so that he might experience the worst thing the world had to offer that flesh. You have to ask the question now, is that a mythology? As many believe. Projected onto reality by the desperate human imagination that feels itself corrupt before something they know not what and want to be redeemed from it. And therefore, they create a mythology to solve this imaginary problem. Second 
He came to call sinners to repentance. Luke 5.31, Jesus said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to pay the ransom, and Jesus came to call. We not only need someone to pay for us, to deliver us out of the slavery of sin, we need someone to rescue us when we're going that way and say, Come! To get our attention and to call us out of darkness into light. And he didn't leave any of that merely to chance or to us. He did it himself. He came to call. He's calling right now this morning. He calls today through his word and through the preaching of his word. And he is calling you now. You will never be able to say at the judgment day, you never called out to me. Because God will say on December 20th, I was going to say Leah's birthday, but she's gone. On December 20th, I called you. I used the voice of John Piper, the preacher, but I called you. I wanted you. I told you all I had to offer you. I made it free. The door was flung wide. That's happening right now in this room. Third. He came to give sight to the morally blind. John 9:39. Jesus said, "For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see might see." Or John 12:46, "I have come as light into the world that whoever believes in me might not remain in darkness." We not only needed a ransom to be paid for us, we not only needed a call to summon us back, our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, are blind without the coming of Jesus. Why in the world are we in this room? Millions of people in the world look at what's happening in here this morning and say, what in the world do you see in that? Why do you go? What do you see in that? Because they don't see anything. God is not worth it. Forgiveness is not worth it. Hope is not worth it. A substitutionary dying son, Jesus, is not worth it. A fellowship of loving, broken believers is not worth it. They're blind. They'd rather watch the soaps. How do you account for that? How do you account for the slavery and blindness? That addicts people to the most stupid, silly, banal, inane, useless things in the world while the magnificent realities of the universe are of no consequence to the human soul. How in the world do you account for that? But one thing, blindness. An awesome blindness lies upon the world. Christmas is all about light. It's all about opening the eyes of the blind. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into the world that those who do not see might see. And it might be that he would draw near in this room this morning and awaken your eyes so that you walk out of here seeing. Seeing. Spiritual reality. That never meant anything to you before. That's why he came.
Fourth, Christ came to divide households. Matthew 10.34 Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. That's an odd text for Christmas. I mean, don't all the carols say peace, peace to men of goodwill? We must balance the Christmas carols with this text. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those of his own household. Now, what does that mean? That means that when the Son of God came and made a ransom and called and opened the eyes, those who receive the ransom are liberated from guilt. Those who are called now have a new master. Those have their, who have their eyes open see glorious things so differently than they used to see them that they begin to think and feel and live a different way. And it threatens people and their families. It alienates people for a while. And there's division and there's tension and there's brokenness in the family precisely because God came into the world. Christ came into the family. Now, it doesn't mean, that text doesn't mean that Christ really delights in divided families. He's really glad when one son goes astray. The father doesn't believe. What it means is, God values the authentic embracing of the Son of God for eternal life far more than he values the avoiding of division. Does that make sense? He values salvation. He values this ransom and this call and this eye-opening and the response to it far more than he enjoys a superficial peace based on ignorance and unbelief. He will pay the price of division. He came to divide and to be a sword in families, if it takes it to get some of them saved. That's a painful text, but a helpful and realistic text at Christmas time because hundreds, maybe, in this room right now have very mixed emotions about the next six days and the family dynamics you're going to be in, and it is not exciting for some of you. It's painful. Fifth, he came to save from divine condemnation. John 3.17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Now, it's bad enough that we are enslaved to sin without Jesus. It's bad enough that we're running away from him and need to be called back. It's bad enough that we're blind and need to see that there is a worse condition that every one of us is in without the coming of the Son of God into the world, and that is... Over our head hangs a condemnation from Almighty God. And if God is against you, it is the most fearful thing in the universe. There is a condemnation hanging over our heads. And Christ came into the world that there might therefore be no condemnation. 
to those who are in Christ Jesus. Believing in Christ Jesus removes the Damocles sword hanging over my head from a just and holy God. God's love has removed the sword of His wrath from all those who rest by faith in His Son. But not to believe, according to this text says, he who does not believe is condemned already. Christmas means deliverance from the condemnation of God through the sending of His Son to bear our iniquity. And finally, He came to give us eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes on Him might not perish but have everlasting life. Last night when Patty... When Patty said to the nurse, how do people bear it who have no hope? This is what she was talking about. Patty has tasted Jesus' gift of eternal life. We really want to connect with you. Uh, in every way we can, because God wants to connect with you. I'm going to invite all of you to take this little brochure, or what do we call it, a card, out of your worship folder. This card is designed to connect with all of you who uh, are not part of Bethlehem. We, we want to give you a gift right off the bat. Let me just walk through this with you and show you how to, how to receive the, the Christmas gift we'd like to give you, and then any other way you'd want to respond. The first thing there says, as a visitor this morning, I'd like to receive a complimentary copy of R.C. Sproul's Reason to Believe. That's this book here. This is a very significant book about answering hard questions about Christianity. And you can just have one. If you'll check that, put your name, phone number in. There's a box right across the commons back there. You just throw the card in and, and take the book. We're really happy for you to have this. And, and after you've done it, I mean, read it, share it with somebody else. The second thing is maybe some of you have questions about something you've heard this morning or about the church. And we have a team of people who'd love to call. So if you'd like somebody to call and answer a question, check that one. Last time we did this, a few months ago, just before Thanksgiving, we got a lot of these number threes. You write a prayer request on the back, things we can bear with you. And we as a staff divvied them up among ourselves and prayed over them for a week or so. Let me mention to you at this point some more things about prayer. Um, Glenn Larson, whose baby died last night, usually leads tomorrow morning's prayer meeting. And uh, we've got that arranged, and we pray it at uh, 7 tomorrow morning. And then instead of praying on Christmas morning, which is Friday, the Christmas prayer group is going to pray on Wednesday. So either of those mornings, that, that'll be 6.30 on Wednesday, 7 o'clock on Monday. Now, at the end of this service, we have prayer teams who stand here on either side, little badges on because they've been trained. And if you... Sense God leading you in any way to seek spiritual help or prayer. They would love to put their hand on your shoulder and pray for you about anything in your life that you're struggling with. But if you want, to, want us to pray later on, check that one and put the prayer request on the back. The fourth one is um, that we're starting a class, not January 13th, as it says here. That's my mistake. That's a Wednesday, not a Sunday. But January 10th. We're starting a class designed not for believers, but for seekers. 
that is people who are not sure they believe or they're sure they don't believe, but they're serious about asking the right questions of life and they'd like to work with a, a pretty intelligent engineer who came to the Lord about six years ago, Carl Schmulen, who loves to take people from where they are and bring them farther on. So if you want us to contact you about that class, just check that one. The last one is perhaps the most significant of all. Today I have seen how the coming of Christ into the world relates to me personally. I am this morning putting my faith in him as Lord and Savior of my life. That would be the most important day of your life if you checked that and meant it. Before Jan comes to sing, I want to read the final Advent poem that I wrote in response to this whole issue of eternal life and the life of Elijah. You know, Elijah is one of three men who did not die but was taken up into heaven. And I think the reason for that in Scripture is not to show us what is possible in this life, but to show us what is certain about the life to come. This poem is taken from that part of Elijah's life just before he just before he goes to be with God. Elijah lived among the hills where once he sprung from solid stock in Gilead. He was a tishbite from his head down to his leather thongs and spent his days, except when he was sent on some unhappy errand to Samaria, in prayer and grew each day less suited for the earth, less like the people of his birth inside, though like them he would wear the leather belt and camel hair. Within, he was not there, but felt his soul on fire each time he knelt and put his torch into the flame of heaven's throne and took the name of God upon his lips and yearned to be where God is never spurned, but every saint and angel's soul burns for the Lord beyond control. It was as though the Lord would light in him a torch so hot and bright and so beyond extinguishing with holy fire and blazing wing, not Gilead nor any place on earth could stand before his face. Ten years had passed between the time Elijah made his fearful climb along the cliffs of Sinai, where the still small voice of God in prayer had shattered all his lofty zeal and left him with a spark more real more lowly, more intense, less vain, more fit for heaven and for pain. Ten years since he had heard or seen the widow and her son. Sixteen would be his age, and she, he thought, more beautiful and ripe with age, no doubt. But surely after tears, she would have loved again and wed another man and made him bread from that same cruise of oil and jar of barley meal that now seemed far away, but once had held them both in thrall like a betrothal oath. Elijah often took the path from Gilead to Zarephath, but met the angel of the Lord halfway, and though he oft implored, was never once allowed to see the widow or her son. To be a prophet, he would say, is death though one should have immortal breath. Indeed, it was, the end was very near, 
And God sent down his word. Gideon, Elijah, listen well. Your life has been a living death. No wife, no sons, no friends, no gifts to grant, no pleasant home, no fields to plant, no fine attire, no games to play, one long forgotten great display. I made your life a living death. I give you now immortal breath. Tomorrow you will come with me through fire into eternity. But first, a visit you must pay. Go down to Jericho today and bid the prophets there farewell. There is a message you must tell to one of them and one to hear. And so by nightfall, he drew near the city wall of Jericho and waited for a boy to go and call the prophets from the place of prayer. And as they came, each face he studied for a sign and prayed that some impression might be made upon his mind, which prophet would both give and get the word he should. And one by one they passed before his eye. At last, a lad, no more than 16 years, came up. You seem familiar, son. Was it a dream I had or have we met? The lad replied, we've met. And I'm glad once more before you bid farewell to see Elijah and to tell you now what you have longed to know, but which the Lord refused to show. I come from Zarephath. Ten years ago, I hugged your leg with tears. You saved my mother with your bread and raised me from the dead. Elijah's heart leaped like a fawn in springtime at the sight of dawn. He bade the prophets leave, and when they were alone, there flowed the ten long years of tears, and he embraced the son he might have had. He traced the silhouette in search of one he loved but never touched. My son, Elijah said, how is it now that you've come here to Jericho and vow with needy prophets here to dwell like this? Is not your mother well? I do not know, the boy replied. I only know that she has died. And whether she is truly well is what the Lord sent you to tell. My message is a common one on earth, but yours surpassed by none. Elijah's heart collapsed as though the fawn were shot. And may I know the way she died and when? Was it in recent days? And was she hit by some disease? Have you no dad? These years, did she not marry, lad? Oh, she was hit, the boy replied. I still remember how she cried out for the Lord to save your life. But it was no disease. The knife of Jezebel consumes more than the plague or any sickness can. The night you left us in Jezreel at midnight by the potter's wheel and Obadiah hollered, go. It was the last thing he would know. And mother hid me neath the stairs and all I heard were blows and prayers for you. Lest they should think a son was near. Elijah, have they won? The words they spoke still scream inside my head today. They stood beside her body there. 
when she was dead, not ten feet from my face, and said, Long live the prophets of the Baal, and such the end of those who fail to worship him. When they had left, I knelt beside her face, bereft of everything I knew but you. I cried until I fell asleep. I do not know who found me there or brought me here to Jericho. What ought I now, Elijah, think of God? Do you still hold to Aaron's rod? Do streams divide? Does fire descend? Does God still make a meal extend? Where is Mount Carmel and its might? Do ravens really fly at night? Do little boys rise from the dead and widows from their mortal bed? You ask Elijah, is she well? I do not know. But if you tell me, I will listen like a son. Elijah said, they have not won. Nor will or could they ever win. There is none but the Lord. And in the hills of Gilead, I've seen more glory than a wicked queen could ever win if she would slay all 7,000 saints today. For though she reign in splendor now, fret not, nor envy those who bow and benefit from bloody knives. God will avenge the holy lives of fallen saints and vindicate the faith of all who hope in him and wait, including widows from their mortal bed of clay. You come with me tomorrow morning, son, and you will know that God has won. Though he has made my life a death, there burns in me eternal breath. Like Moses, he will take me up this time by fire, and I will sup before the sun goes down beside your mother and the one who died to save my life. In candle four, come see behind the open door of death. And know that those who trust in God will never die, nor must we grieve as if the dead were lost, though there is now an awesome cost. Behold, we pass through fire and sword into the kingdom of the Lord.